I'm James DeBacco. I'm Martin Leva. And I'm Susie Hess. Our Stories Matter podcast was born out of a need for a brave space for people who experience the criminal punishment system to share their truths. This is Our Stories Matter, brought to you by Trauma-Informed LA. Our Stories Matter celebrates the complex lived experiences of activists and healers by sharing their inspiring stories. In season four of Our Stories Matter, we will focus on two organizations that are dismantling the 46,000 collateral consequences, Homeboy Industries and Forestry and Fire Recruitment Program. So today we welcome Father Gregory Boyle, founder of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles the world's largest gang rehabilitation and reentry program that serves more than 9,000 community members annually. I always say that if love is the answer, community is the context, and tenderness is the methodology. Context is everything. Everybody embraces content at the expense of context. You can deliver therapy, but it's the context that matters. We live in a society that's all about content. If only we knew more, but it's the context. Here's the place that will receive you. We won't try to reach you. We will try to be reached by you. Suddenly, you've changed the whole tenor of the place. So welcome, Father G. Beautiful words, as always. Thank you. Good to be with you. So we have interviewed... um, Fabian, Ivy, Manuel, Gonzalo, and Stephanie, and they all talked about your heartbeat, every single one. So I'm wondering if we can start off and just talk about why does compassion matter? Well, compassion is really about connective tissue. You know, what what is it that, you know, allows us to be empathic and to connect to people and to receive people and and as you said in that introduction about being reached by people. So it's, uh, it's a way of knowing and acknowledging that everybody is unshakably good and we belong to each other. So, you know, we want to somehow never lose sight of that. It's the thing that keeps us compassionate and attentive and, and loving, you know. I mean, it's, in the end, it's about that. Can I jump in with the question? Yeah, <laughs> get in so, there. <laughs> so I think uh, when you share about compassion and you say we belong to each other, I've always had a, I always admired your work, as I, as I said earlier. But um, I think as a, as a former gang member, as somebody who's been to prison, somebody who's been involved and now on the other side of, you know, helping people come to college, get educated, your work is so important to me. And I, I once heard you say, and I use this all the time, I once heard you say that you don't work with gangs, but rather you work with gang members. And um, this is kind of a two-part question because I want to know, like, what's one of the biggest lessons gang members um, have taught you? Um, and and why why us? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, as a former gang member, somebody who was a travieso when they were going, going through it, people who just never give up on us, I always wonder why, you know what I mean? So, so what's the biggest lessons gang members have taught you? And also like, why, why us, Father G? Well, I never set out to do anything, you know? So, but I was pastor of the poorest parish in the city and we had eight gangs at war with each other. So I didn't set out to, you know, I feel called to work with gang members. It, that wasn't even on my radar. But then, you know, I was in a position where I, you know, had to, these were my parishioners and I was burying kids. So uh, then I just backed, so you evolve, you back your way into things, you know. So I knew everybody and I knew uh, in those days, you know, gangs were more kind of indigenous, you know, they, 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 their vadia was where they actually lived. Now there's a there's a sort of a uh, commuter reality, you know. I live in Montebello, but my barrio is in, you know, Pico Gardens or something like that. And you go, wow, that doesn't make any sense. But in the early days, you know, that's why I said they were my parishioners because they lived in their neighborhoods, you know, and their neighborhoods, their barrios were in, you know, my parish geography. So, so I, again, I never intended to do this, but once you do it, you, you kind of do recognize, 
that the gang member is, uh, you know, in those days, in the beginning days, the most demonized, you know, subgrouping of the poor. So they were demonized. They were um, easily despised. They were readily left out. They were the disposable. And, and so, you know, they were my parishioners, but, but because I knew them and they were eternally interesting and funny and, and loving and so cariñoso. And I thought, wow, why are, why are these folks demonized? It doesn't make any sense. And it's like, and of course, law enforcement would say, if only Father Boyle knew the gang members like we do. And I go, well, obviously that's nonsense because, you know, I knew them. I, of course, I knew them better than law enforcement. So um, anyway, it was a thing that kind of then you're responding, you know, well, what if people wanted to have their tattoos removed? OK, let's let's get a machine and let's have a clinic and let's have 45 volunteer doctors do it. That kind of thing. So all, all those things were, you know, we originally started out of oh, school was the first thing we did. And then we we they kept saying, if only we had jobs. And then we tried to get uh you know, try to find employers, felony-friendly employers, and we couldn't find enough. So that's when we started, you know, a maintenance crew, a landscaping crew. So we did all those things really as a response, you know, just trying to make our way. And uh, so nobody intends to start, you know, the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on the planet, <clears throat> but you back your way into it, and that's kind of what we did. It's beautiful. I appreciate your work. I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, Father G, one of the things that really stands out to me is um, when I was locked up and I was in the security housing unit at Tehachapi, um, I had an opportunity to uh, read your book, Tattoos on the Heart. And um, I I was just mesmerized and I was floored by the way that you were able to just move around you know, vicariously through Boyle Heights at will, you know, at, and without, you know, having any fear or any peril, you know, to your life, because you're, you were so involved with the compassion and empathy of others. So, you know, the tattoos on the heart, it reminds us that no life is less valuable than another is what you said. So as an advocate for radical kinship, how do you believe that trauma-informed approaches can contribute to building stronger communities and reducing violence? Well, you know, it's interesting because recently, you know, they were in L.A., they said that uh, homicides are down 12%. And so, again, you know, we all know that when stuff like that happens, law enforcement, you know, takes credit for the, the fact that that happened. But, you know, they have a notion, which is, you know, who causes crime or what causes crime? And they would say criminals. And we would say, well, no, actually, you know, a lethal absence of hope, uh, a traumatized, as you say. Yeah. You know, the damaged, the wounded, the broken, the those who are suffering mental anguish. That's the cause of crime. So if we knew that to be true, as all of us know that to be true, then what would you do? Well, you would infuse hope to folks for whom hope is foreign, and you'd help heal what is broken and wounded and damaged, and you'd deliver mental health services in a timely way. And now, would that stop crime? Of course it would, because criminals don't cause crime. You know, people who are in pain cause crime. So alleviate the suffering, alleviate the pain and watch what happens to the statistics. But, but again, if you think bad guys doing bad things is what crime is about, then I don't know, then you hire a thousand more police. But, but if you want to get underneath this or the homies always say, find the thorn underneath, you know, yeah, that's what you want. You want to find the thorn underneath. And so, uh, so being trauma-informed is, is being aware that behavior is a language. And if people color outside the lines, they're, they're speaking a language to you. 
and it's a language of of despair and wound and trauma and, and mental anguish. So let's let's roll up our sleeves and and walk each other home to health and wholeness. Mm. You know that I love that. That is so authentic that you said yeah. that. I've never I've never actually heard you know um, compassion expressed in that manner. And I just I just that's beautiful right there. And I really appreciate your response. Well, part of the issue is that, you know, we have these notions that we keep co-signing on, you know, like I, I, I spoke recently at a, a New York uh, LA times book festival thing. And I was on a panel with a rabbi and Steve Lopez, who's a, a columnist for the LA times. And, and at one point I said, I was talking about everybody's unshakably good, no exceptions. We belong to each other, no exceptions. And I said, do I think that if we embrace those two notions, it would in fact address all the vexing complex social dilemma that face us? Do I think that would happen? And I paused for a second. I said, yes, I do. And the whole audience, a big packed room, roared with laughter. And when the laughter subsided, I looked at them and I said, yes, I do. <laughs> Actually, I do. I think if, if we embrace those two notions, <clears throat> so suddenly somebody who has a gun and is shooting up somewhere, if you know that that person is unshakably good and belongs to us, well, then you're going to roll up your sleeves and you're going to try to recognize when the person's in distress and you're going to try to deliver alivio, you know, you're going to try to help this person. Right. So that yeah. they suddenly don't shoot up, you know, a synagogue in Pittsburgh. Right. Or a school in Uvalde. Right. Or, or be a homie who goes on a mission into an enemy's neighborhood. So, but if you think that there are bad guys out there, then all bets are off. You know, brace yourself. It's not going to look good. Because you can draw a straight line from every excessive use of force by police and the notion that there are bad people out there. But we all believe it. We've all been raised on it. And we need to um, unlearn it. Yes. Yeah. I all of your I love words. that. Oh my God. I love that too. And you know, you had a t-shirt that said nothing stops a bullet like a job. So when we talk about sort of the underlying thorns of poverty and employment and ed education that leads to behaviors of survival, um, do you feel that things have changed in terms of what has been created at Homeboys with employment and training and education? Yeah, you know, because in the early days, it was job, job, job. And and the truth is, you know, not not all employed gang members, you know, uh, will stay out of prison and not all educated ones will. But then about 15 years in, we said um, a healed gang member will not reoffend, period. So we kind of retired our T-shirts. Maybe they still have them somewhere. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, because, because it was more than a job. In the early years, I mean, so part of the thing was because we had a school and gang members would say, if only we had jobs. So I, I learned many years later that if you listen to gang members, they may say, if only I had a job. But if you know gang members, then you'll know it's about healing. So we shifted probably in midpoint. We, we still locate jobs. We still have a huge employment services department. You know, we have our 18-month training program. And then after they're done here, we try to make the transition seamless to go to another job. So we still believe in jobs, but but healing is kind of the essential thing. And that's why the 18 months is kind of is an essential foundational time of healing. It's, you know, 18 months is how long it takes for an infant 
to attach to the caregiver. So we kind of use that parallel universe that it's about, it's about attachment repair. And so how do you get people connected, you know, to each other and excavate their wounds and do the work so that they can leave us after 18 months and the world will throw at them what it will, but this time they're not going to be toppled by it because they're sturdy, they're resilient. And that's born in a community of cherished belonging. So, you know, that's, that's what you want to cultivate here. But, you know, Homeboy is the front porch of the house everybody wants to live in. So you're also pointing to the world and you're saying, enemies work side by side here. They stand next to each other making croissants. They used to shoot at each other. <laughs> now they're making bread. So, so you want to announce that message, you know, that um, what if we had this as a goal, a community of kinship and cherished belonging. And if that was our goal, I, I think we would no longer be promoting justice. We would be celebrating it. If, uh, if I can ask, because I love that, I, I truly do believe that um, somebody who's formerly incarcerated, I think James could, could contest this too, like the healing, uh, the inner child in me was the most important thing. The love that I didn't get, I had to not only receive it, but actually start to love myself. Like healing has been the number one way I've been able to stay out of prison 16 years and stay proactive in my life, give to others. But in like the 18-month program working with um, uh, the beautiful people you do, what does healing look like for them? Is there a resistance to it? Because trauma... Sometimes the only thing we know, it's the only thing we go back to. So healing, actually, we've got to face that trauma face on and not go around it, not go over it, not go under it, but go through it. What does that healing look like for uh, some of the folks around, around your space? That's an excellent question, you know, because um, it's like, um, you know, our graduates from our Jesuit high schools, they always have that question, what does the graduate look like at graduation? So there's a, an idea to, um, they get very noisy. So every once in a while I have to <laughs> um, signal that they calm down. And so, um, so I think part of the thing is people leave all the time here. They'll disappear. They'll stop coming. They'll, they'll relapse. They'll get popped and go back to jail. In our early years, we were always fretting. We got, oh, God, I've, I wonder if they'll come back. But now nobody says that. We all say, oh, he'll be back. She'll be back. Because once you get a dose of people cherishing you, um, it's so compelling. But coupled with that is exactly what you were saying, that sometimes you have to kind of face, you know, what was done to you. And even the ACEs, you know, the adverse childhood experiences, what kids are exposed to, as you were talking about inner child, that you have to, you know, do the work. And there are a lot of ways to do it. It's not just talk therapy. Sometimes it's in group. We have a, an equine therapy program where they go out and work with horses. I mean, it's incredible wow. once a week. And a whole group goes, and it's very therapeutic, totally therapeutic. So, um, but I think, you know, I was thinking this, my, late, my latest theory is about home. And I remember a homie said to me, you know what the best part of Homeboy Industries is? I said, what? He said, the home part. And, and this is more home than home. But I was reading a, a Tibetan saying the other day, and it says, wherever you have received the most love, that is home. And we wow. get that. We get that. And, and I've received more love here in this community. But I thought, is that really what home is? Because the problem is people leave here and they have to go, they get another job in that warehouse and they go, oh God, you know, it's not the same. It's, I don't like it here. So then I think that the, the caveat is that I would say loving is your home, the act of loving. So that if you believe that, it's never about receiving love which is gravy and icing on the cake, it's fine to receive love. 
But the goal is to be loving. And if loving is your home, you'll never be homesick. And so, so I was thinking that's the measure of health. Healing ends in the graveyard for all of us. But if after 18 months, they can leave here sturdy, resilient, and if they can know that loving is their home, then they can leave here. And again, the world will throw at them what it will, and they won't be toppled. Because it's not about receiving love, it's about being loving. Then they let love live through them. Then they find their true self in loving. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. You know, it, it, in that awareness, when you talk about the love, you know, and, and we're working with men and women who are formerly incarcerated and, um, you know, former gang members or even still on the fence of being a gang member, what, in your opinion, what are some effective strategies for engaging and supporting those individuals who may be resistant to seeking help or breaking away from gang involvement due to the traumas that they've experienced? Yeah, I, you know, so earlier you, you mentioned uh, that we don't work with gangs, we work with gang members. And so, and I learned that kind of the hard way. I mean, I don't regret any of the work I did in the early years because I worked with gangs in the early years. I mean, treaties, uh, peace treaties, truces, ceasefires, shuttle diplomacy. I did all that stuff, and I don't regret it, but I'd never do it again because it, it uh, you know, it served the cohesion of the gang. It kept the gang together. And... Uh, and it gave it oxygen. So I, I would never do that again. So I always say our program is not for those who need help. It's only for those who want it. So you do have to walk through the door. Right. But that's that's the same thing like a drug rehab. You know, it kind of doesn't work unless you want it to work. And at the right. end of every 12-step program, they say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. Right. And that's the same thing here. So, um, so we don't recruit and we don't cajole and we don't try to convince people to walk through our doors. You know, when we had a lot of, when we had three juvenile halls and 25 detention probation camps, and I would say mass at them, I would hand out my card endlessly. And I can remember a guy came in here and this has happened many times and he's all covered in tattoos on his face. And I, and he says, do you remember me? And I said, help me out. I don't. He said, well, you baptized me at, at Central Juvenile Hall. I said, wow. And wow. then he reaches into his wallet and he pulls out this old crinkly card that I gave him, you know, 20 years ago. And, you know, it's an old card. So it has several addresses ago. You know, this is our fourth headquarters. And I'm looking at it and say, whoa, we haven't been in that office for a long time. So I go to hand it back to him. And this has happened many times. And there are big tears in this guy's eyes. And he looks at me and he says, I should have called you. And it's heartbreaking because, yeah, he should have. But no amount of me wanting him to have a life is the same as him wanting to have one. So, but it's heartbreaking. And, and it to this day, after 35 years of this organization, if I could accelerate that process, I'd do it, but I don't know how to. Because yeah. like all recovery, it, it takes what it takes. You know, in gang recovery, it's, I don't know, the birth of a son, the death of a friend, a long stretch in prison, and it takes what it takes. But I, none of us on this screen can manufacture that. Right. You know, and... Uh, Except for the fact that we're always here, 120,000 gang members in LA County, every single one knows who we are and what we do, and, and, and we wait. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think about how I know James, by the way, is um, 
I'm an advisor to students at USC who are formerly incarcerated, um, and James is the president, and they call themselves the Unchained Scholars. Um, and they created themselves. You know, it, it wasn't anything to do with like USC or anyone else. They rose up. They wanted the support. So when I hear you talking about like, you know, coming forward and sort of wanting that, you know, I see that for sure, you know, in James and all the Unchained Scholars. But my question for you is, you know, people always throw out the word resilience. And I'm wondering how you would talk about resilience. What does that look like? And what can people do to sort of develop or help to support resilience? Well, you know, I, I, use, uh, I use the word sturdy, which means you're not going to get knocked over by anything. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing, resilience. But if it's true, as I think we'd all agree, that a traumatized person may be likely to cause trauma, you know how they say hurt people hurt you. Mm -hmm. If that's true, it has to be true that a cherished person is going to be able to find their way to the joy there is in cherishing themselves and others. It has to be true. So that's the dose that people receive. It's a dosage. You know, they... But everybody does it. It's not like they're lined up to come to my office and I cherish them. I do. But so do the, are the homies who are security guards here. They do it too. And so to everybody, you know, everybody does it. And so it's a kind of everybody participates in that. So we always think that and it's like building character, you know, like, here, hand me a hammer, I need to build character. You know, I don't think it, you don't build character. You love people. And, and they're going to find some core, healthy people have character. Not, you know, it's not bad people don't have it. It's healthy people have character, integrity, uh, you know, a moral compass. But you don't teach that. You love people into embracing it. And that's different. And that's why it's, you know, so systems change when people change. And people change when they're cherished. I don't know any other way. So like the county jail sometimes will have, um, you know, what do you call it? Behavior modification. And, I, I, and they love that. They love, yeah, we have a behavior modification program. I can't remember what they call it. But it's like, who, who does that serve? Well, it serves society who would feel better if you behave differently. But homeboy is the opposite of that. No, we just, we want you to experience real life healing, which gives birth to resilience and sturdiness. Oh, and by the way, the byproduct of that is behavior changes. But we approach it at a different way. We don't, we don't say cut that shit out. We say, we love people, we cherish them, we know their name, we know what they're carrying, we stand in awe at what they have to carry, rather than in judgment at how they carry it. And so that will lead to character, and that will lead to integrity and authenticity, and that will lead to behavior changes. But I think that that's a more organic way to approach it rather than wagging the finger and say, don't do this, do that. That's, you know, shit, Gene. I love, I love listening to you talk. <laughs> because one thing um, I've learned um, my, in myself the last 16 years of being home from prison and doing work and being around so many just wonderful people, um, and in, in talking about behavior change, I mean, to me, you're, you're an amazing role model. Right? It's the way you eloquently talk about feelings and emotions and all this stuff. And uh, I've always believed that uh, to not even assist, but just to, to help other people change, you got to role model what you want them to do. You know, you, you know I believe that we, we got to serve as role models. And if they see somebody doing something different, it gives them permission to do it, too. And I, I, I just I just love listening to you talk because it just helps me. I'm just I'm taking notes here because I'm like, this is this is the work. This is how the work happens. You learn from others and you, you give it away. Um, but I have a question for you. Um, 
around trauma. And I hope that you have a group of people who ask you this on, on a very regular basis, but I'm going to ask you because um, Susie and James and I and, and others, we work around trauma. We see trauma, right? And I know that you have been around trauma since I'm assuming, I'm just making something. You've been around it. You've seen it since the day you started. You know it, you see that you said it here, you've buried uh, plenty of, 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 of individuals and I think that role modeling self-care is so important, but everything you do, everything you see, even the stories that you hear, interactions you have, you make an assumption there's a lot of trauma. I, want, I honestly want to know, how is it that you take care of yourself? Because we have to take care of ourselves to be in the mix of being able to help others. I really want I've always wanted to ask you this question. So how, how is it that you take care of yourself? What is it that you do? Well, I think obviously I don't take care of myself. I'm I'm just overweight and aged and tired. And <laughs> a and B, I I kind of have a different take on self care. You know, so like I don't believe in burnout. So I and so sometimes staff here because I learned this ten years in, and then I've never I've never been close to burnout since. And, but by year 10, you know, I realized that uh, I was burning out. And, uh, and I, I'll tell the story briefly, but I, 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 I took a homie to rehab who was from a, in the projects and a gang member and he was selling crack and then he became his own best customer. And so I drove him to a rehab. 30 days later, I had to call him to tell him that his younger brother put a gun to his head and killed himself. He was also a gang member. Gang members don't do this, as you know. And it was a, quite a rare thing. And so I told this guy, Lulu, I said, I'm going to pick you up, bring you to the funeral, but I'm going to drive you right back. And he says, please do. I want you to. I love how rehab feels. So I went to pick him up. He gave me a big abrazo. He gets in the car and he says, I had a dream last night and you were in it. And so in the dream, he says, we're in a, you know, kind of room, like a ballroom size, small ballroom or conference room or something. And there are no windows, no lights, no illuminated exit signs, no light creeping under the door, black. And he says that I'm silent and we're not talking to each other, but he knows I'm in the room, even though it's pitch black. And, and in the darkness, suddenly I pull out of my pocket a flashlight and I aim it steadily on the light switch. And he knows that he's the only one who can turn the light switch on. And he's very grateful that I have a flashlight. So he follows the beam of light until he gets to the light switch. And with great trepidation, he flips the light on and now he's sobbing as he's telling me this dream. And he says, the light is better than the darkness. Like he didn't know that to be the case. But I've never had an experience like this in my 69 years of living. But just like that, like a light switch, it just changed everything. I knew exactly what it meant that my the source of my burnout was I was trying to turn the light switch on for gang members. It, it can't do it. You have to be content with the fact that you own a flashlight and you know where to aim it. And so when staff members come to me and they say, oh, I just think I'm just too compassionate and I, you know, I need three months off or something, I go with all due respect and great love the reason you're burning out is because you've allowed this to become about you and it's not about you. If you go to the margins to rescue, save, fix, then it's about you. It can't be. But if you go to the margins to be reached by people, if you go to the margins to receive them, if you go to the margins to have your heart altered by them, then it's exquisitely mutual. You know, you're all inhabiting your mutual dignity and nobility. Then you're never depleted because it's not about you. Mm. You know, it's, 
if you you don't go to the margins to make a difference you go to the margins so the folks at the margins make you different and then it's about us instead of about just me so i i and again i i can't think of any other thing in my life where i saw something and i i never could unsee it again. I, I, I've never gone back. I've never been close to burnout in 15 years, I guess, or more. 20 in 25 years. Yeah. I, in 25 years, I've never been close. You get tired, you get exhausted. You need to do your own practice, like prayer, you know, praying. I, I you know, I sit in the morning, I do my 50-minute walk in the morning. I get up at 245. I'm kind of a monk that way but wow. so you, do, you do all those things and you that's your practice and practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent mm -hmm. but the insight that it can't be about me then every day you're delighting in people every day it's eternally replenishing you know as opposed to depleting and it used to be depleting in my early years because I was on my bike in the middle of the night and put that Uzi down. Are you sure you want to shoot that guy? And, and that was my life for 10 years. And was I burning out? Yes. Not because the work was hard, but because it was about me. And I was trying to fix people. And I was trying to turn the, the light switch on for people. So, so you know, Every one of us possesses a flashlight and every one of us knows where to aim it. And that has to be enough. You know, uh, wow, that. that is, that is so empowering. Uh, go ahead, Martin. I was just going to say, I, lo I love that story. And thank you for, for, uh, for your response there. I just wrote down, it's uh, just <clears throat> take this, take the self out of self care. And it's really about care all the way around. <laughs> So I think that's, uh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Well, but also earlier, the thing about loving, you know, so yeah. why are people sad? Because they're self-absorbed. I, I can't think of any other reason. And how do people pull themselves out of sadness? Well, when they, when they are other-centered. You know, I just had a homie in here right now who's in recovery, and he was talking to a, a younger guy. He told me this. And, and the younger guy said, I feel so sad. I feel kind of depressed. And so the older homie said, get on the phone right now with somebody who's in recovery and, and check in with them. Not, not a sponsor, but somebody that you know who is in recovery and just ask how they're doing. How's their recovery? Kind of what are they going through? The guy came back 15 minutes later. He was literally transformed because he had done that. But if you dissect it, it's because, you know, he found out that loving is his home and he's not going to feel homesick. Mm. And, so, and so he goes and he, it, you know, sure it begins in service and maybe it begins as being other-centered, but it ends up being loving-centered. And none of us know anybody who's loving centered, who is sad. You just don't. Wow. And, and it's really about the source of that is, uh, is self-absorption. So you just want to, and that's our practice is to keep us letting love live through us <clears throat> and anchored in, in the other. Wow, that is so great awesome. wisdom. Great wisdom. Amazing wisdom. And you know, and I think about we're wired to be in connection. You know, we're wired to be in relationships. And you know, self-care, I've never liked the word self and self-care. I believe in it, but I believe in community care or we care. You know, that it's we're part of a community together and that one homie telling the other homie to call um, you know, a peer or friend who's in it. I mean, to me, that's community care. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, embarrassed. I had somebody who I don't know asked me to put a blurb on her book and the book was about self care. 
and I kind of don't believe in it. So, but I did it anyway. I kinda, <laughs> this is a very helpful book. But I mean, it's like I felt badly because I kind of I don't really I don't think it gets at what we want to to you know how how can you stay flourishing? You know how does that happen? And it it happens by you know by moving outside of ourselves. You know, you know it's fascinating that you have these these wisdoms and it's like I'm, I'm thinking right now i'm like oh my god he he's just rewritten the whole social work instructional manual you know mm-hmm. just just basically by by saying that that you don't believe in self-care in that way and i find that i find that fascinating because in the work that i do i work with center for counsel i'm actually a program manager for center for counsel and with jared side who you probably know and we come into Homeboy and we actually, um, we provide uh, uh, our council circles for the women's empowerment group and then also for the men's and um, uh, and the common stories uh, that Gonzalo runs. So the cool thing about listening to you and hearing you speak, it's, a, it's allowing me to basically shift my mindset and my pattern of thought on how I go in and how I see myself not as a practitioner of compassion but as somebody that's going in to just be available for somebody else for their compassion and i you know and i just find that so fascinating and so heartwarming and it just brings me you know to this my next question is what advice or insights would you offer to other organizations or other individuals looking to implement like trauma-informed practices in their own communities or work environments? Well, I always use this example of, of a homie I met in Houston who was a hardcore gang intervention worker. So he'd been to prison, tattooed, gang member, and he was, you know, working with gang members in the streets of Houston. And he pleaded with me after my talk He said, how do you reach them? And I found myself saying, well, for starters, stop trying to reach them. Can you be reached by them? So I think it's a stance. You know, how do you stand at the margins? You know, if you're going to the margins to reach people, then it's, uh, you'll burn out in all the things that I mentioned before. But um, because it feels passive to just, receive people or to uh you know i don't know to to be reached by them and yet it isn't passive because what happens is you're you're again you're inhabiting the same shared space and and everybody's you know um the buddhists always talk about oh nobly born remember who you really are well everybody's holding up the mirror and reminding each other you're exactly what God had in mind when God made you. And then, then everybody's becoming that truth. Everybody's inhabiting that truth. And then that's resilience. Because then no bullet can pierce that. Death can't touch it. Four prison walls can't keep that out. That's, once you know that, that's, that's the pearl of great price. But you're doing this with each other. And, and that's really important. Otherwise, you know, like maybe comparable programs, you know, want to deliver services. And I'm always careful about that because we deliver services. But it's secondary to the cherishing that happens here. Otherwise, you become the DMV. You know, somebody comes (laughs) in and they say, I I need anger management. Well, you need window number 45. Yeah, (laughs) you don't want to do that. You know, you want to just say, uh, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, when people like volunteer before the pandemic, we had like 300 volunteers here who did a variety of things. Doctors who removed tattoos, tutors, you know, psychologists, counselors. And they'd always say the same when they came, especially the the non-doctor group. They'd say, what are we going to do here? You know, I want to volunteer. What am I going to do? And I'd always say, no, what's going to happen to you? 
that's a better question. But if it's about what you do, then it's a, it's kind of a it's a different thing, you know. And and so you know, you, every one of us has heard somebody say, "Oh, you know, I went to the soup kitchen," and I'm telling you right now, I got more out of it than I gave. It's a little bit like that, but it's way beyond that, you know, because it's not about giving; it's about receiving oddly and and it's about holding people so i'm a jesuit and saint ignatius of loyola had this word he used called acatamiento and it comes from an archaic word acatar which means to look at something with a uh with attention and it gets translated acatamiento as affectionate awe and that's the stance you stand at the margins with acatamiento, with affectionate awe. You're receiving people. You're, you're allowing them to reach you. You're, you're, yes, I'm letting my heart be altered by you. And I'm standing here with affectionate awe. I'm not standing here with, you know, uh, get your act together. Can't you behave better? You know, I'm standing here with awe at what you have to carry every day. And it's affectionate. You know, it's cariñoso. And and so I think that's that's what you want, you know? You know, Father G, uh, it's just been an absolute privilege and honor to be able to have this time and experience with you. And... You know, you, you are the example of listening from the heart and speaking from the heart. And, you know, I just, I'm just so moved and I'm so touched and I'm so honored. And I just want to know, what was it like for you to share and tell your story today? Well, I, I feel like the, you know, you guys are kindred spirits. So, I mean, you, you understand the shorthand, you know. And that's nice, you know, because now we're all part of the same, you know, you, you, you three have been doing this for a long time. So you're, we're all part of the same effort, you know, which is to uh, imagine something different. You know, it, it's, it's healthy, it's good, it's right and true to imagine a world where policing is obsolete and prisons are empty. It's okay to imagine that. Because once you imagine it, then you can kind of set about to, you know, make it a reality. So, and, and it's like we're all doing, you know, our own small thing. And, and thank you for saying those nice things. I, although I feel like I'm not, I don't do it very, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm, that's the practice. So homies here will say, who are in recovery, you know, one day at a time, like everybody would say. And I would say, no, you know, one breath, one breath at a time. You know, because nice. it's about the inhale and the exhale. With every breath, you cherish with every breath. And that's your intentionality. And cherishing people is not hard. Remembering to cherish, now that's difficult. So we have to re remind each other to remember. And, and it's really, a, it's not a daily thing. You don't, you don't get, you know, you, you're not like one of those electric cars where you plug yourself in in the morning and you're good to go. I wish. And I wish all the insights that the four of us share in common, there's nothing once and for all about them. I mean, you have to, you really do have to connect to it every breath you take. I will cherish this person. I will delight in the person who's about to come into my office, even though they're, I, I know them to be, you know, a pain in the ass. So, <laughs> but, you know, so I've had about 93 of those today alone. And, but you have to kind of return to, you know, behaviors, the language, they're coming at me sideways. That's okay. Just love them. And uh, I don't know. 
That's what I think. <laughs> oh my God. Father G, that you have given me so much and more. And I can't wait to go back and listen <laughs> all over again. I so appreciate your heartbeat. And yeah, Manuel and Gonzalo and Stephanie and Fabian. I mean, everyone I agree with. I they mean, loved they loved being with you. And so oh. they and in fact I didn't quite get what was going on and they kept you know, Puka is Stephanie. We call her Puka. And she kept coming in, you got to do this. And then somebody else was telling me, you got to do this. And I go, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I didn't quite know exactly what was happening because I, I basically don't ever know what's happening. So people point me in the right direction and I go, but it's been a joy to be with you guys. It's been such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. A, 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 such an honor. Yeah, to, to be continued because this conversation has to has to continue. Yes, please. Thank you so much, Father G. Our Stories Matter is brought to you by Trauma Informed Los Angeles. We want to thank Homeboy Industries and the Forestry and Fire Recruitment Program for sharing their experiences and opening their doors and hearts to us. Thank you also to Fabian Deborah for allowing us to record at Homeboy's Art Academy. Thank you also to the University of Southern California Good Neighbors and thank you to Yehuda Price for composing our original music while incarcerated. Thank you, Ivan Reyes, our amazing editor. Please consider giving us a review with a five-star shout-out. Subscribe to Our Stories Matter wherever you get your podcasts. Join our trauma-informed Los Angeles community at traumainformedla.org. Please go to our website to read the full bios and credits. And stay tuned for more Our Stories Matter. We would like to take a moment to acknowledge the original stewards of the land where our event takes place today. Trauma Informed Los Angeles acknowledges the Gabrielino Tongva people as the traditional land caretakers of the Tavangar, which today is the Los Angeles Basin and Channel Islands. We are committed to uplifting the names and community members of these lands and across the nation who reside alongside us. We also want to acknowledge the suffering and forced unpaid labor of enslaved Africans and African Americans, which enabled the start of this country. 